Okay, Joshua chapter 24, as we come to chapter 4, of course, we are 24, we are looking at uh, sort of the farewell speech of Joshua here. We'll see his death at the end of the chapter at 110 years old. So Joshua, at this stage, we mentioned last time, chapter 23 and 24, basically it seems is uh, maybe a two-part series of a farewell address. He's kind of giving to us his dying words. And again, we said before the value, the importance of someone's dying words, not that someone's living words don't have importance and value to them as well. But there's just something that transpires when a person knows that their time is limited on this earth. They've had a lot of life that they've lived out and a lot of the things maybe that we may not say uh, on other occasions, it seems that somehow there's a freedom to speak certain things, there's almost an authority that somehow is found when someone knows that they're in their dying stages to be able to just speak some things with real sincerity. And certainly, again, this individual, this man, such a godly individual, a godly leader in Israel's history, Joshua, 110 years old, had been someone who was known, and the Bible speaks of him, someone who wholly followed the Lord, someone who had followed the Lord in a wholehearted way, had been used of the Lord, had seen the works of God, miracles of God, the things that he had witnessed throughout his lifetime of serving the Lord, now leading uh, this last generation of the children of Israel into the promised land, helping them conquer the territories, dividing up the land, now knowing that his time is short and at 110 years old, he just as an older, godly giant of a man wants to pass on some encouragements and some exhortations and the wisdom no doubt that comes from someone in such a situation. So again, just uh, we have these rare occasions in the Bible where we get the latter words of someone toward the end of their life, and I think there's just great value to them when we have the privilege to study them. So we pick up here in chapter 24, verse 1. Again, this seems to be the last speech that he gives before he dies. It says, Then Joshua, verse 1, gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he called for all the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Interesting, as they come together, it tells us that he gathered together the nation, particularly all the leaders, certainly because he wants to encourage them. As we said before, uh, the leadership was critical at this point, especially to Joshua's heart, because as we said last time in our study, uh, when power or authority from a leadership perspective over the congregation transitioned from Moses to Joshua, that was from one God-ordained leader to another. But it seems as Israel enters into this next phase of their history, uh, Joshua doesn't have a solitary replacement. We don't see God telling Joshua as he did Moses okay, tap this individual, this is who I've chosen to lead the congregation next. It seems there's sort of a, a, a distribution of the power and multiple leaders begin to take some role, of course, at least until we get into the time of the judges. And uh, that is kind of a very unique and somewhat sad time in Israel's history. So we don't know exactly if that would be something we say where they had the most godly individuals always leading them uh, because the people were in many ways just doing what was right in their own eyes and it took a leader to sort of just bring things uh, back together and rein things back in. But Joshua is concerned about the leadership now. And as an older man, he wants to invest in the next generation. I think this is beautiful to see this older godly man as a leader. He wants to pour into the, the up-and-coming leadership that would be able to carry on uh, oversight and provide guidance and direction to the people. And he gathers them together. Interesting enough, it says they're in Shechem. Now, that's not just not a central place geographically. It seems that a lot of significant things would happen at the city or the location of Shechem for God's people. Uh, case in point, it's very beautiful to see here that Joshua gives a farewell speech and sort of signs off challenging the people to serve 
the God of Israel rather than any other God because it was in Shechem that their founding father, if they were genuine patriots of their nation, Abraham, who was the founder of their nation, when he first came into the promised land after God had appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12 and told him to leave his country and to leave his people and to go to a land, he said, of which I will show you, referring to this very land, the promised land that God gave his people, the land of Canaan. Uh, he told them, when you get there, I will make a great nation of you. And it says Abraham, ultimately, when he arrives in the territory of Canaan, it says that it was at Shechem, this very location that the Lord appeared to Abraham and he receives his first revelation from the Lord in the first place in the land where he really has an encounter, a significant spiritual experience is there at Shechem. So there was something very uh, symbolic, something very special about the area of Shechem and throughout history it seems some really wonderful things happen. So certainly no doubt perhaps just a coincidence here that God, God directs Joshua to call them together at Shechem, the leaders. It's interesting, it says even as they came, it says they presented themselves before God, verse 1 says. I like that. They, they, they come because they're a human instrument of a leader that God ordained and was using, calls them together. But when they presented themselves there, they weren't presenting themselves to Joshua. They were presenting themselves to God. There was a sense that God was working through Joshua, but ultimately they understood who their genuine and their true leader was. They come together, they present themselves before God. And I think whenever we come to our Shechem, if you would, where we want to have an encounter with the Lord like Abraham. We want the Lord to appear to us. I think that needs to be our heart, that we don't come per se for the Joshua, but we come and appear before the Lord. Lord, we are here before you. We're presenting ourselves to you. We want you to appear to us. We want to hear what you would say to us, even as God of Shechem first spoke words to Abraham to confirm the promises and covenants to him. So they now come together and Joshua begins to speak to the people. Verse 2 tells us, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now from verse 2 down through verse 13, we're going to see he basically gives them a brief, very brief, history lesson. He rehearses the history of God's faithfulness and what God had done among them. And I want you to just take notice. We won't spend a lot of time in it, but I want, again, much of it is things we've already covered throughout the first five books of the Bible as we study through these things, now including Joshua. We're finishing up as well. Here is the sixth book. Uh, a lot of this are things we've already looked at in depth, but he basically gives an abbreviated rehearsal of the history of God and we have all perhaps heard before that history could better be said his story and that's exactly what this specifically was for the nation of Israel because you're going to notice an emphasis I think it's some like 17 or 18 times you're going to read that God keeps saying in the first person I did this I took you out of the land. I delivered you out of their hand. I brought you into this. And there's this continuous emphasis of what they saw God do. And it was all about God's faithfulness and how he had been the one to establish them as a people, to help them as a people, to bless them as a nation, to fight their battles, to give them strengthen the things that they would do and just a reminder how it was a total work of the grace of God and that their history was all about what God had done among them and the only reason they had a history that they did was because of what God had done among them it wasn't what, what they did as a people that made them so special as a nation it was what God chose to do among them because God was at the center of their nation and I think that's a very important thing you know the Bible says you know blessed are those people whose God is the Lord and when God is at the center of a nation, that, that makes all the difference in the world here. And there's this reminder, listen, we are who we are, Joshua's going to say, and where we are today for one reason, because of everything that God has done for us. From the day he established our nation and all the things he's done throughout history of the hundreds of years since, it was all because of the things that God has done so many times on our behalf. And I think this is really important because sadly, again, if we think of our own nation, even here in the United States of America, and the establishment of our nation and how we founded ourselves as one nation under God, and, and how that was so much a part of the fiber work and the foundation of us, and yet now, unfortunately, sadly, we have those who are basically trying to revise our American history. 
and are trying to give our, our children, our upcoming generation, a completely different perspective historically of how our nation started and what it was built upon and, and, and even where we obtained the ideas for our laws and our constitution and, and all these different things. And there's a revision of American history that's taking place. And that is a very detrimental thing when that takes place. Uh, and I think it's important. I think it's almost fundamental, especially for those of us who are a generation ahead and, and generations certainly that have been around longer than others to be the biggest advocates to say, listen, this revised history is not genuine American history. This is why America is who they are and, and why they came through these things. And, and, and here, Joshua is this 110-year-old man. He doesn't care about being politically correct. He's 110. He's going to die. <laughs> he said, I'm going to tell you the reason why we are who we are as a people. And he just very directly states it in abbreviated form. So he begins here, verse 2, saying, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, they dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. Now, the river referred to there was uh, the river, not Euphrates, but uh, the, the river, uh, excuse me, the river Euphrates is what's being referred to there, that where Abraham came from, it was on the other side of the river Euphrates in the area of somewhat of what we would kind of call the, the area of Babylon and so forth in a time where Abraham, before he even met God, came from. And look what it says there in verse 2. Very important. It says, and Abraham and his family, before God called him into a relationship and revealed himself to Abraham, they served other gods. Then, verse 3, he says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So I want you to see the very clear indication of even the establishment of the Jewish people as a nation, the, the origin of the nation of Israel, which began with Abraham, their founding father, and from his seed, the nation of Israel has come. The Bible tells us very clearly that there's nothing in and of itself uniquely special initially about the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. The reason they are special is because of what God has done for them. God made them special, but it was a sovereign choice of the grace of God. It tells us Abraham and his descendants, they weren't inclined towards God. They weren't seeking the one true God. It wasn't as if God was looking around and said, oh, there's finally, finally I found someone who's interested and who's seeking God. The Bible says in verse 2 that Abraham and his descendants, they were pagan idolaters. They were worshiping other gods. And God, as a complete act of his election, his grace, and his grace alone sovereignly, looked upon Abraham in his condition and chose, by his sovereign wisdom and will and purposes, to reveal himself to this man Abraham, chose him as an act of the grace of God, revealed himself as the one true and living God to Abraham, and from Abraham chose to make the nation of Israel, which are now his chosen people, a special treasure under the Lord. And that is what makes them special, not because they're more inherently good or spiritual than any other people, but because God sovereignly chose them. God chose them and put his grace and his favor upon them and establish them as the people that they would be through which the Messiah would come and the scriptures would come. But how interesting to see, he says, I took your father Abraham. He didn't say your father Abraham was seeking me. I chose him, I took him out of the miry clay and I put his feet upon a rock and built him then as a foundation spiritually. And again, just a reminder of how that is so often the case. Even Jesus, when he speaks of you and I in the New Testament, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I don't know about you, we may think in some ways, well, yeah, I, mean, I was kind of seeking the Lord, but the reality was, is before anything ever began to transpire that we recognize was going on in here, the Lord was pursuing us, and he was seeking us, and even in some ways, I think at times, he's making us empty and frustrated, and he's letting us exhaust everything that we're trying out, and doing whatever it takes to bring us to a place where we would actually come to a spot of such emptiness and internal frustration that we start seeking for something besides living for ourselves, and, and we think at that point, oh, I'm starting to seek God now. Right, that's because God for a while has been working on you <laughs> to get you to that point where you would realize how desperate you were 
that you would start to long for him. But what an amazing thing. The Bible teaches us, even of our own salvation, how, how we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God, that he lovingly chose us before the foundation of the world, before we even decided to yield our free will to choose to follow him, he was already pursuing us and revealing us and, and, and how wonderful to know that God graciously wanted you to be his child. That should make you feel wonderful and it should make you feel incredibly secure. And this was the case with Abraham and the Jewish people. He says, I took your father, made him who he was, the father of the nation of Israel. Verse four to Isaac, he says, I then gave Jacob and Esau to Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, he says, I sent Moses and Aaron and then I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. And afterward, I brought you out. So he refers to how the descendants of Jacob ended up going down into the area of Egypt where remember then they became slaves under Pharaoh. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance and God, verse five says, I sent to them salvation. I sent to them deliverance. I sent to them a savior, Moses, who would go down and who would deliver them out through the plagues and the power of God shown in Egypt according to what he did as he brought them out of that bondage and out of that slavery. But again, as he's rehearsing history, do you see it again? Verse four and five, God says, I gave, I gave, I sent, and then verse five, according to what I did. It's all according to what I did. I gave, I gave, I sent. It's what I did. I have that underlined in my Bible there. According to what I did. I always want to remember that. I always want to remember that personally. I always want to remember that nationally for the country I'm privileged to be a part of. That, that what I'm experiencing, anything of the goodness of God in my life, anything of any blessing or benefits that I enjoy in my life, in my country, it is a bottom line when you boil it down. It's according to what God did. It's because of what God did. That's why we experience any of the good things we experience from our salvation to the temporal benefits of our lives that we enjoy. He says to them, verse six, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came out to the sea. The Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord there at the Red Sea and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. So remember, God opened the sea, made a way when there was no way, showed them that he was a God that had the power to do that, that though Pharaoh tried to bring them back, God opened the Red Sea, did a miracle that had never been done before, made a way where there had never been a way possible before because God can do that. And then he closed the water over to eliminate the Egyptians so they could not stop them or capture them. And your eyes, again, verse seven, there it is. Your eyes saw what I did, God says, in Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Again, God speaking of how he fought their battles for them. Then Balak, remember that story? The son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. So again, referring to that account there in Numbers where Balak tried to pay off this enigma of a prophet Balaam and said, come and curse these people, the people of God. And he remember every time he tried to curse them, a blessing would come out of his mouth and he would bless them instead. Because as the Bible says to us in another location, God kept turning the curse into a blessing. And how even when people were trying to harm God's people, he wouldn't allow it to happen. He would even take the evil intended against them and he would turn it around to bless them and work in a good way for their lives. But again, God was doing it. Then you went over, verse 11, the Jordan and you came to Jericho and the men of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites. Remember all these ites we had to keep looking at, the Jebusites, the Uptites, all those guys. Sorry, I had to slip that one in there. But I delivered them into your hand. Again, God brought the deliverance. I sent the hornet before you. God even used nature and creatures to fight on their behalf. 
you also, the kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. So again, it wasn't their fleshly efforts. It was the divine favor and power of God. Verse 13, he concludes saying again, look at it. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, cities for which you did not build, and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. I have the word right next to verse 13 there written grace. That's called grace. Grace is God's favor, God's blessing with the absence of working, earning, merited, achieving it on our own. He says there, look, I've given you land that you didn't work for it. I just gave it to you because I wanted to bless you. I gave you a land you didn't have to labor for. I gave you cities to inherit which you didn't put in the sweat equity and build it on your own. I just chose to bless you with it. You're eating, you're being provided for in ways which you didn't have to supply yourself. I'm just supplying for you by my grace in supernatural ways as they inherited so much of that land and it was already prepared for them because God allowed them to just inherit it. Now, as he goes to verse 14, he says, now therefore. Now, the idea therefore is always a response. So he's saying, look, verse 1 through 13 in light of the grace of God, he's saying, in light of God's goodness and his blessings and all that God's done for you, again, 18 repetitious statements, I did this, I did that, I fought for you, I delivered you, I took you in, I brought you, after all that God's done for them, he says, now therefore, with grace as the motivator, and that should always be the motivator of why we serve the Lord. Now, therefore, in light of considering God's grace in your life, he says, fear the Lord. He starts with the exhortations now. And serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord exclamation point so Joshua again here he's 110 years old he has no interest or need to mince words at this point he knows the value and benefit of serving the Lord he's also seen the harm and the detriment to those who don't serve the Lord and what happens so with incredible experience and godly wisdom with spiritual insight he says listen the grace of God should be such an easy motivator to make you want to serve the Lord. Paul says in the New Testament that the love of Christ compels us. Again, if you, if you ever lack compulsion or compelling to want to serve the Lord or give more to the Lord, do you know where that comes from? Just begin to seek more to understand the love of Jesus for you. Because when you see the love of Jesus for you and you begin to understand more fully the love of Jesus for you, nobody will have to twist your arm to want to serve the Lord. You will be compelled to want to serve the Lord. It's like the person whose life's been saved by somebody else and they have a debt of gratitude the whole rest of their life towards that person. It's the same idea. And so here, Joshua is saying much the same thing. He's saying, now therefore, in light of all God's done, he says, fear the Lord. Why would you fear anyone else besides the Lord himself? Why would you fear man or fear the approval? of Fear the Lord, he says. He's the one with all the power. He's, and he says, serve him in sincerity and truth. The idea is don't be insincere in serving the Lord. Don't be someone who serves the Lord half-heartedly in a disingenuous way where you maybe profess with your mouth that you're going to serve the Lord, but yet then in your actions you live in contradiction or in public you profess to be committed, but then in your private life you're playing around and serving other things that are sinful and wrong and dark and shameful. He says, no, serve the Lord in sincerity. Be sincere about it, he says. In truth, the Bible says in Psalm 51 that God desires truth in the inward parts. He's saying be a genuine, committed individual in your service to the Lord and your willingness to serve him as your God, as the Lord of your life. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. What does that look like? Well, he tells you there in verse 14. Put away the other gods. Apparently, they had brought some of their gods along and amongst them, there apparently were other idolatrous things that existed 
amongst them that they had brought from prior life. And he says, listen, you need to put away those things that you know that are wrong, that are ungodly, that are destructive. And he's saying anything that's going to inhibit your ability to serve the Lord, you need to remove that from your life. And again, this is an important thing. Part of our willingness and our ability to be able to serve the Lord sincerely means that there are other things that maybe we were serving in the place of the Lord that we need to take and sometimes we need to set aside. It's the same way in a relationship. You you, you can't sincerely commit to a relationship romantically with a person and say, you know, I want to marry you and I'm sincere about this. But yet say that and then the next week go on a date with three other women. That's not insincerity. That's not a genuine... You need to put away the other relationships and be fully committed to one relationship. And yet sometimes as Christians, uh, we can even err in this way where we want to keep this little pet idolatrous thing over here or this thing that we know is wrong, it's displeasing to God, and we want to still give a little bit of allegiance to this for our own selfish indulgence or we think it's okay to have this little allowance or acceptance. And here, the challenge is, do you want to serve the Lord in sincerity, he says, then put away the other gods. And we're going to see they were secretly involved in idolatry and Joshua knew that. That's what he's going to begin to address as, as he goes forward here. He was aware and now he's challenging now to do that. That's why, again, you notice the emphasis. It's repetitious purposely. Verse 14, he just says in exhortation, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, he's saying. Now, he, there's a reason why. Look what he goes on to say, verse 15. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land where they were in whose land you dwell. So Joshua understands something. He understands, number one, that people have free will and that they're going to choose and that though he can exhort them and he can counsel them and he can give them good godly wisdom as a 110-year-old man about to die who had served the Lord and knew the value of that, he realized still, all I can do is tell you the truth but you're going to choose to do whatever you want afterwards. So he's telling them here, choose, because you have the freedom to choose, and God's created us that way. God's created us to have a free will, like we are created in the image of God, in the same way God chooses and determines things. We have been given this incredible privilege, but at the same time, it's a sobering, scary thing to be able to make choices and to make decisions. God doesn't force us. God doesn't rape our conscience. God allows us to decide. He allows us to make choices. And here he says, so choose for yourselves, but notice the emphasis, whom you will serve. He says, if it seems evil to you, or you look and say, I, I don't, I'm not into that God thing. I mean, he's like, I don't know if people are too, they're too crazy. And he says, it's okay, fine. If, if it seems evil or unhealthy or unpleasant to you or worthless to serve the Lord, then he says, you still have a choice to make. He says, choose, notice, choose whom you will serve. What's he saying? You will serve someone. Human beings are, 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 are naturally, irresistibly religious people. We all worship something. There, there really is no such thing. We use terms in our culture, you know, agnostic or atheist. That really doesn't exist because everybody worships something. We are created by God to worship so we will worship something. We will all bow the knee to something. Now, we may choose to serve some uh, you know, lifestyle. We may choose to serve some pleasure. We, uh, many times, human beings, we can just be very self-serving. We serve ourselves. Whatever we desire, we're, we're in a sense, uh, we're what we worship. We worship ourselves. And we would say that outwardly. Who do you worship? Oh, myself. Well, some might say that, a few celebrities maybe, or somebody's into, worship myself, why wouldn't I, don't you worship me? But we all serve something. And so the Bible is indicating, choose whom you will serve, because you will bow the knee to something. Whatever the master passion is of our life, whatever occupies the most of our attention and our interest and our devotion and our allegiance, it can be a career, it can be some physical possession, it can be the approval of other people, it can be some desire. It can be some substance that we abuse. It could be so many different things, but we will serve something. And the Bible's saying, choose who you'll serve. 
because you will serve something. And this is given in light of the fact that Joshua is saying, if you don't want to choose the Lord and you don't want to choose to serve the Lord, don't think that means that there's just that one option. Realize you're going to serve something. You're going to give worship to something. And in light of that, he says, choose for yourselves whom you will serve. And then he says at the end of verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua, with strength and determination, says, listen, I can tell you this as your leader and as an example. And he says, and, and I can tell you this as the leader of my home and the one in, in, among my family who's been charged with the responsibility to be a leader amongst my family. He says, irregardless of what you choose to do, you have the freedom. I can't force you to serve the Lord. I can't force you to But he says, but as for me and my household... It's already been determined we will serve the Lord. We have chosen to do this. Says, As for me and my house, it was decided for him already. And as the spiritual leader of his home, his mentality was despite what others do, we in my household will serve the Lord. And I think th this is a critical decision to make as an individual. And more than that, if you're not just only an individual who you serve, but if you are the individual, husbands, fathers, or if you're a single parent, the one who is the head of your household to some extent, this is important. Because you have a sphere of responsibility and accountability that goes beyond just yourself. And if you're the one who is the head of that household and paying the bills and providing leadership and oversight for that home, whether it be you and your puppy, you and your puppy are going to serve the Lord. Whether it be you as a single parent and whatever children you have, as for you and your children, you determine what you do as a family. And, and here, Joshua, he made a decision first personally, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord whether other people serve the Lord or not. I know what I'm going to do. But he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, Joshua is saying, if you are a part of my household and you're going to sleep under the roof that I pay the bills for and eat my food in my refrigerator and have the benefits of what I provide of this home and this household, it's not a negotiable thing. We serve the Lord. This is what we do in this home. If someday you establish your own home life, you can serve who you want to serve in your own home life. But as long as you're under my roof and in my household, we serve the Lord in this family. This is what we do. You know, I, I, quite frankly, I, I think in some ways we, we are creating a generation of parents that, that, that are just becoming so weak-willed people-pleasers that are more concerned about trying to be their children's buddies and friends and everything else than just, quite frankly, being parents. What do you going to say, Junior? Well, I don't want to go to school anymore. Tough. You're going to go to school. Well, I don't want to go to church. Tough. As for me and my household, as long as you're a part of this household, we will serve the Lord. Well, I don't like that rule. I don't like that standard. None of the other families. Sorry. I don't think we have that bad of a life. We serve the Lord. You have two parents that are together. They love each other. This home's not falling apart with drug addicts and alcoholism and problems. And this, Listen, we have a pretty healthy, stable, normal home life. Because if you serve the Lord, you're going to have a sense of God's blessing and favor upon your home. You may not have everything perfect, but there's certainly going to be a peace and a joy and a love and a stability and not a bad home to live in, quite frankly. And for them to understand, as long as you're a part of this household... This is who we will serve. And someday when you are able to establish your own household, you can choose. But until that time, you need to submit to the direction spiritually of the one who's in charge of this home. And listen, this is such a beautiful thing, such a good resolution to make in your heart. And again, I just want to especially encourage you, if you are in the role of leadership or oversight in your family life, whether as an individual parent or two parents, you need to cling to that. You need to stick to that. You need to live by that. And, and to realize that, listen, you're not always going to have everybody's approval. 
that's fine. And don't ever fall into this trap too of well, what this family's doing, that family's doing. I, I, Joshua says, as for me and my household, despite what others choose to do, this is what we're going to do. And this is important because let me be very candid. Quite honestly, even amongst the church as a whole in the body of Christ, you know, this kind of, well, that family, they, they don't do this or they don't, I mean, they don't go to church every week or, you know, they don't have those kind of standards for their, or, you know, they don't go to church on Wednesday nights. I don't care what that family does. This is what my family does. I'm sorry you were born into this family, but that was God's choice, not mine. And in our household, this is what we will do. These will be our standards. These will be what we live by. We live according to this book. We live according to what pleases God because as a parent, ultimately, that's who we're going to give account to. I'm going to give account to God for what I did allow in my home, didn't allow in my home, what direction I led my family. And I'll tell you, your kids may not say it, but they want you to have that kind of spiritual backbone. Because when they see that, they recognize you stood for something. And what you will do, I'll tell you, is you will keep them in a healthy boundary and you will help them to have the spiritual backbone when they become parents to lead their home effectively and to be another generation of a spiritual, well-led home that will just contribute to a much better future for the next generation following. So great, great statement there. Okay, I preached that till it was exhausted. Let's move on. Verse 16, so the people answered and said, far be it from us. So they get caught up in Joshua's enthusiasm. Hey, wow, that was quite a stand there, Joshua. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. We don't want to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also, we're on board, Joshua. We like your direction. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. So they make a profession as if they're going to take the same stand that Joshua does. And they, I think in some ways, are caught up in the kind of the, you know, the enthusiasm of Joshua's strong stand as a spiritual leader, as a man of God for his family. And they take his lead and they say, hey, we don't want to forsake God. What are you kidding me? You're right, he's done so much. We also, we're on board. We're taking the same pledge. We're going to serve the Lord for he is our God. Look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, again, he's got spiritual discernment what's going on, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said, no, no, you're not hearing us, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua, verse 22, said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, okay, if you're sincere, notice again, he says to them, then put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. So notice what's happening here. Joshua senses that there's something underlying in their life that's not right spiritually. Certainly God gave him discernment spiritually. He recognizes that there's secret idolatry going on in these people's lives. Now they're caught up in the enthusiasm of what Joshua's saying, so that's why they start saying, no, we're going to serve the Lord too. We're going to do what you're doing. And, and, and we're on board with that. And, and interesting, verse 19, Joshua, after they say we're going to serve the Lord, he says to them, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't serve the Lord. Now, uh, to me, this is almost, if you think of the whole plot playing out, it's almost somewhat humorous. It, this would almost be like, imagine giving an altar call. So he gives a spiritual message and he says, choose. Do you want to serve the Lord? If you want to serve the Lord, stand up and say you want to serve the Lord. And people stand up and say they want to serve the Lord. They come forward and say, we're here. We want to serve the Lord. And he says, uh, you can't serve the Lord. Go back to your seats. I mean, in essence, that's kind of what's taking place. He says, choose. Who do you want to serve? I'm serving the Lord. Who are you going to choose? We want to serve the Lord. He says, you can't. You can't serve the Lord. Why? Because he said, you need to serve God in sincerity and in truth. 
And he says, if you're genuinely going to serve the Lord, you, you can't serve two masters. And Joshua recognizes what's going on. He says, you can't serve the Lord. He's a holy God, a jealous God, who will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he says, you're going to bring God's wrath upon your life because you're abandoning the Lord, in a sense, acting in an adulterous way towards your commitment. Now, listen. Josh, don't, don't misinterpret here, you know, theologically, doctrinally. Joshua is not contradicting what Scripture teaches as a whole, that God will forgive sin when it's confessed and repented of. That's not what he's saying here. The Bible teaches as a whole that certainly that God forgives sins. What Joshua is doing is saying, listen, God cannot be worshipped lightly. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God who wants your complete 100% devotion. He says, you can't serve God in just a trivial way and just be casual about it well yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna add god to my life you know that's kind of the idea there i'm gonna I'm, yeah i mean I, i'm gonna keep doing what i'm doing but i'll i'll add jesus in sure I'll, I'll mix a little jesus into my life and yeah i mean if that gives me a little genie in the bottle when i need it once in a time right on yeah i'll mix a little jesus in i'm gonna keep doing everything else i'm doing but i'll, I'll put a little god into my life and, and just in a light kind of casual trivial way we want to live like that without really acknowledging the truth of his authority and then deliberately forsake the Lord in a willful and presumptuous attitude. He's saying God's not going to tolerate that. God's a holy, jealous God. He wants your exclusive, complete devotion and worship. And to think that you can serve God at the same time be simultaneously serving other things. He says you're missing the whole point here. God doesn't want that. God wants it all. He wants it all. And again, the best way I can illustrate this, and I know I apologize if it seems somewhat of a, a brazen way to illustrate it, but I mean, in some ways, that, that would be like a, 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 you know, a, a spouse saying, you know what, I, I love you, I want to be committed to you, and, and I want to sleep in the same bed as you, but uh, during the day, I want to have sex with my secretary. But I'm going to come home and have sex with you at night, I promise, every night still. Now, how well would that fly over? How well would that be received? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. But listen, I'm coming home to you every night. I'm, I'm sleeping in bed with you all night long. I'm only with her for a half hour during the day. Now, we see the, the, the lunacy of that. And we say, what, that, that is horrible. That would be, but in some ways, what does the Bible speak of? That God looks upon us as a wife and he is a husband. And he wants our full devotion. He's a jealous God. He's a, he's a God of love, a holy God. And he wants our exclusive devotion. And in some ways, we just want to kind of, you know, add the Lord. And he says, no, no, no. I want all of you. I want you completely. I don't want you serving other things and serving secret sins and giving your devotion to those things and hopping in bed with that stuff and indulging yourself and then thinking, oh, you'd just come home and cuddle up to me at night. And see, this is the idea here that Joshua is saying, listen, don't treat God like that. Again, Joshua is a man of God and he, he cares about God's honor and he's saying, I'm sorry, you can't serve God that way because that's not serving God in sincerity, he's saying. God wants your full devotion. So that's why he says to them again here the second time, verse 23, if you want to serve God, he says, then demonstrate it. Demonstrate it how? Not with words. He says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the God of Israel. He says, don't speak about wanting to serve God. Show it that you want to serve God. Put out of your life anything that stands in the way of your devotion and your dedication to God. And sometimes in our lives, that's what keeps our heart from being fully inclined to the Lord. And he's calling them here to a place of repentance, a time where they would set aside things that would inhibit them from their relationship with God. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, there comes times in our life, certain moments, certain occasions, when the Spirit of God, when Jesus, our Joshua, in a sense, challenges us and puts his finger upon things in our lives and he says, listen, there are some, there are some foreign idols in your life. There are some things in your heart that, that are foreign. The idea of something foreign is it's out of place. This doesn't belong in your heart. Because I'm in your heart. And I don't want to share space with something that's wicked or defiled or evil or dark. And the Lord puts his finger upon it and he says, this needs to go. 
This secret sin needs to stop. It needs to be repented of. It needs to be cleared out. It needs to be cleansed from your life. And sometimes there comes those times for us where we need to choose to serve the Lord in sincerity. And part of that means we need to be willing to set certain things aside and say, you know what, Lord, yes, this doesn't belong in my life and I'm willing to get it out of my life so my heart can be fully inclined towards you in devotion and in dedication. And when we do that, the Lord forgives and he's gracious and he gives us the power to do that and he honors it and something happens of a level of dedication and commitment and in a new way our heart becomes inclined to serve the Lord. So verse 24, the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. We, we want to serve the Lord. We want to listen to his voice. So Joshua says, verse 25, he made a covenant with them. The people that day and made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So he makes a memorial of this commitment they made to God. It's somewhat beautiful. He says, listen, if you're genuine, then look, let's write this commitment down. Let's remember this day. Let's record this, these rocks. He says, they've heard your words. He calls them as witnesses. A rock, something stable. It doesn't change. And he says, when you make a commitment to God, it's firm. It shouldn't change. You should be serious and, and, and it should be as strong and as firm as a rock or a stone. So Joshua, verse 27, said to all the people, behold, this stone shall now be a witness to us for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he has spoken to us and it shall therefore be a witness to you lest you deny your God. So Joshua then let the people depart each to his own inheritance and it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of the nun, son of nun, excuse me, the servant of the Lord, what a beautiful title he acquired, the servant of the Lord. He died being 110 years old and they buried him within the border of the inheritance at Timnah Sarah which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. And Israel, verse 31, look, serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of his elders who outlived him, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So while Joshua lived his strong presence as a godly leader, the people served the Lord. For a short season afterwards, the elders, those who were sort of his co-laborers with him, as they outlived him, the people still served the Lord because amongst those individuals were those who had seen the work of God firsthand. They'd experienced God's power and God's grace and saw what God did among them. And because they were aware of it, they remained faithful to the Lord. But what this is saying is, is once that generation died out, and we'll see this in the book of Judges, the next generation this so-called commitment they were making here, they turned away from the Lord. And they didn't follow the Lord. Why? Because they didn't have a firsthand experience with the Lord themselves. And in some ways, listen, in some ways, the parents horrifically faltered because they said, we will serve the Lord. As for us in our household, we will serve the Lord. We want to do what you're doing, Joshua. We... But listen, had they done that, they would have trained the next generation by doing what they could to help them understand, listen, it's not just about a spiritual education. We can't just tell you the facts of what God did for us. We need to bring you into your own experience with the Lord, where you have your own encounter and your own experience, because if they experience the work of God themselves, then the next generation would follow God and live with God. And we need to remember as parents, we have a huge responsibility. Again, certainly we can do our best. We can't control what our children do and we can't control what the next generation is doing. But we have a seriously high responsibility and a calling as parents and as the church in this generation to prepare the next generation and not just to preach truths at them and not just to tell them facts and war stories of our own life, but to help them have their own encounters with God, their own experiences with God. I always tell my children all the time, listen, there's a vast difference between hearing things and, you know, and having a spiritual education and having a spiritual experience with the Lord themselves. It's a very big difference. They need to have their own experience with the Lord in a personal way where they see the works of God in their own life. And they say, wow, I saw God work. God worked in my life. He answered my prayer. 
He did something. Because my dad kept dragging me to church every Sunday and every Wednesday, I experienced the Holy Spirit in worship myself. I heard God speak to my heart through the Bible study. And see, then the fruit of that choice to parent in that way begins to pay off because they experience the work of God themselves. And that is what gives them an anchor spiritually that when you and I pass off the scene and we're not controlling their life anymore, and we shouldn't forever anyway, they then choose to walk with Jesus themselves. And the next generation serves the Lord faithfully as they ought to. Verse 32, And then the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had brought from the sons of Hamor, father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, also died, and they buried in a hill belonging to Phineas' son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So I mean, the book of Joshua closes really with the record of three people's deaths. <laughs> Joshua's death, Eliezer's death and a reference again here to the bones of Joseph who had died 400 years ago. Remember, but Joseph, his dying wishes were, he told his brothers, listen, when God delivers us out of Egypt and he brings us into the promised land, bury my bones there because I believe one day God's going to get us out of this and he's got a brighter future ahead of us. And in faith, the Bible says, Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and he gave instructions concerning his bones. Why? Joshua said, listen, I believe God has something better for us in the future. And 400 years were to happen. Jo J Joseph in faith said, I believe no matter what's going on with us right now, in faith, I claim, I believe God's got a better future ahead. I believe God has something better for us and that God's going to do it and God's going to perform it. And in faith, he claimed this. And here now they're bringing the culmination of his dying wishes to pass as they bury his bones. And here's the bottom line. 400 years later, they're doing it. What one man was willing to believe, God in his time brought about in his glorious plan. And you know what? I think it's just a good reminder to all of us. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. May we be like Joseph, people of faith who can look at the climate of the church, who can look at the state of our country and say, you know what? I'm willing to believe that if God wants to be gracious to us, that he could pour out his spirit and he could do a work that would blow everybody's mind and something better could exist in the future. And the Bible tells us that God honors and rewards faith. Let's stand. Let's pray together.